Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And welcome to the third and, and final, at least for now, episode in our series about the history of Panasonic, aka the Matsushita Electrical Industrial Company. At the end of our last episode, I talked about how Konosuke Matsushita, who founded the company in 1918, retired as chairman of the company in 1973. He stepped into a more informal executive advisory role at that time. Now, I say that, but executive advisors in Japan can exert an enormous amount of control over companies even after they have officially stepped out of leadership roles. More on that as we go on. We also heard about allegations that Panasonic, along with several other major electronics companies in Japan, had practiced price fixing both in Japan, domestically, where the companies would sell products at a premium, and in the U.S. market, where these same companies would sell products at a loss in order to undercut American electronics companies and kind of gain the market in the U.S. So while the company history has a lot of positive elements, there are at least a few smudges that warrant investigation. We'll talk about a few more of those in this episode. But we pick up in 1973. Masaharu Matsushita, Kanosuke's son-in-law, is still the president of the company at that time, and uh, Arataro Takahashi is chairman. Takahashi had played an important role in establishing Matsushita's relationship with the Dutch electronics company Philips, and Philips had really helped the Japanese company get up to speed on the consumer electronics industry. Essentially, Philips was providing the technical know-how and Matsushita was providing the access to the Japanese market, and it was a beneficial relationship. Uh, Philips had retained a nearly 35% stake in the company as a result, uh, and Takahashi was instrumental in getting that to happen. It's interesting to see that he became the chairman while Masaharu remained president, because typically it wouldn't work that way. So we need to consider how Japanese businesses typically handle succession, and this will become even more important as we go on in this episode. Now, it's not that different from the way many other companies handle succession, particularly those that tend to look within the company itself as opposed to bringing in a leader from some other company. In Japanese companies, it's typical for a president to move to a chairman position when the previous chairman retires. And it's not unusual for a chairman to take on one of those informal executive advisor roles on the board. So even when they're gone, they aren't really gone. Or as Red Letter Media likes to say, nobody is ever really gone. Normally, one of the most senior-level executive vice presidents of the company will then assume the role of president. And so seniority plays a massively important part in succession in Japanese businesses, as well as in wages, typically. Though we learn there's also a tendency for control of a company to remain within a family, which could be another way that an outgoing executive keeps one hand on the steering wheel even after they've officially retired. 
Takahashi certainly had been around a long time. He had worked at the company since the 1930s, and he played such an important role in getting that relationship with Phillips established, but in this case, he sort of leapfrogged Masaharu. I couldn't find much information on what was going on at the executive level at this time, but my assumption is that Kanosuke felt that Masaharu was best left in the president position for a little while longer and that he would move up to chairman in the future, and perhaps there wasn't someone that impressed Konosuke enough to step into the role of president, so he wanted Masaharu to remain there. Uh, because, again, while he was officially retired, Konosuke was still very much involved with the operations of the company that he had founded way back in 1918. One of Konosuke's directives was having a profound impact upon the company and really on the electronics industry in Japan in general, and that was his goal of getting wages in Japan closer to what U.S. companies paid their employees over here. And this wasn't just an altruistic desire to reward employees, but to encourage productivity and to be more competitive for skilled and educated workers in an increasingly competitive industry. But it also meant things had to change from a production standpoint. Raising wages would mean increasing the cost of doing business, which would impact profits. So one of the things the company focused on was streamlining processes as much as possible, making them more efficient and economic. This included automating processes whenever it made sense to do so. And the end result was that by the 1970s, Matsushita was one of, if not the most efficient large company in Japan, even over companies like Toyota. By 1971, wages at Matsushita were comparable to those in West Germany. And, you know, if you're young, you might not know that there used to be an East and a West Germany. By 1972, just before Kanasuke would retire, the wages were actually pretty close to what employees were doing in comparable jobs in the United States. While this was happening, an external crisis made things more complicated for the company. In the autumn of 1973, when a coalition of Arabic forces launched a surprise attack on Israeli forces, it created the Yom Kippur War. It took place during Yom Kippur, a Jewish holiday. And sometimes it's called the Yom Kippur War, sometimes it's called the Ramadan War. It was also coinciding with the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. And this war only lasted a few weeks, but the world was drawn into it because of various alliances, including the Soviet Union on one side and the United States on the other side. And the complexities of that conflict are well beyond the scope of this show. But the effects on industry are what I hope to focus on. It does play a part in technology. At the end of the war, a coalition of Arab countries decided upon an oil embargo against the U.S. and other nations, and this led to a global energy crisis as oil production slowed down. Japan was not immune to this crisis. The cost of raw materials increased, as did the cost of shipping stuff from one place to another. I mean, that oil embargo was going to have an impact on fuel prices, which would make it more expensive to ship things, which meant that you had to charge more for your products. You see how this becomes a, a ripple effect. And Matsushita was trying to be as strategic as it could be to limit the effect that the crisis would have on sales figures. But even so, the company posted a decrease in profits in 1974 compared to 1973. Uh, it also had more sales during that time, but it wasn't profiting as much. Even though it was selling more, 
it was making less money, and both sales and profit would be on the decline in 1975. One product the company introduced in 1975 would fail to get traction in the market at all. So in the 1970s, a few companies were battling it out to create the definitive home entertainment media playback device. And this took a lot of different forms, all of which were in some level of competition against each other. Some of them were playback-only devices, like you would have to go out and purchase a movie or TV show or rent one and play it on a device. So the Capacitance Electronic Disc, which was made by RCA, was one of those types of devices. I actually have one of those literally at my feet right now, an old CED player. The, the LaserDisc player from MCA DiscoVision would also be another one, but I want to talk about VCRs. So VCRs, or, or video cassette recorders, are one of those technologies that had a huge impact on how we consume entertainment. And I might do an episode about that in the near future, about how the development of the VCR changed entertainment itself. And there were a few formats that all did the same general thing, but with different approaches. Generally speaking, these machines used magnetic storage, much as audio tape had, in order to store video and audio information. A VCR has, at the very least, an electromagnet that acts as a reading head, and as tape moves below this reading head, the tape induces a current to flow through that electromagnet because of the magnetic particles that are in the tape, and that flows through the VCR, and that current is a signal. It's meaningful. It, it can be decoded and that decoded information can be sent to a television and potentially an additional sound system as well. And that will play the media that is stored on the tape. Most VCRs also had the capability to write to a blank tape or record over an unprotected tape. And that meant this whole process could be reversed and the electromagnet would generate a magnetic field and the magnetic field would be recorded onto the plastic tape that passes by during the recording process. I'm sure most of you have heard about the format war that raged between Sony's Betamax format and JVC's VHS format. But while those two would be the primary candidates for home theater systems, there were other formats that entered the fray, including one from Matsushita slash Panasonic. And that format was called VX. Matsushita uh, only introduced a couple of models of VCR that used the VX format. The version released in North America was called the Quasar VR 1000, also known as the Great Time Machine. The VX format used tapes that were kind of in a cassette form factor. They were larger than VHS tapes, twice as thick really, and they would slide into the player lengthwise rather than width-wise, the way a typical VCR works. And it was marketed as the great time machine because you could set a timer on the VCR and tape content off the television and then watch it whenever you wanted to. So this is an early example of time shifting. I've watched videos of this technology in action and it's pretty clunky stuff. The tapes take up a lot of space uh, and ultimately the format just didn't take off and Matsushita slash Panasonic discontinued the players a couple of years later. It was clear that either Betamax or VHS was going to win out in that war. Now here's a kind of crazy part of this story. I mean, sure, a company introduces a new format and it doesn't pan out. That's not unusual. We've seen it in other formats like HD DVD versus Blu-ray. 
But what is unusual in this case is that Matsushita slash Panasonic had a majority stake in the Victor Company of Japan, also known as JVC, also known as the company behind the VHS format, which actually won the format war. So JVC started off as a Japanese subsidiary to the Victor Talking Machine Company. That was a US-based company that manufactured phonographs and later became a, a record label. For a while, JVC was actually part of RCA, which had purchased Victor, and uh, that came along with it. But during World War II, the Japanese part of the company split away from the rest of Victor, and it became its own entity. In 1953, Matsushita purchased a majority stake in that company, and so JVC was effectively a subsidiary of Matsushita. Now, this means that the parent company, Matsushita, was putting forward a competing product against one from a company that Matsushita also owned. And also, that format lost, because ultimately, the VHS format would win over VX and more noteworthy opponents like Sony's Betamax. JVC would remain part of the Matsushita slash Panasonic empire until the 2000s. As for the VHS style of VCR, Panasonic would develop and sell those to great effect. The VX system, not so much, but VHS? That one worked like a, a treat. In 1977, the company released a brand of VCRs called MacLord. Masaharu Matsushita would travel to the U.S. and form agreements with various consumer electronics companies for VCR components, and this was the dawn of the home theater era. And so many things would change because of that, including the entertainment industry and the rise of the video rental business. But more than a format failure, the tumultuous events and the global consequences were likely a big burden for the executive team at Matsushita, so perhaps it's not a huge surprise that in 1977, just four years after becoming chairman, Takahashi announced his retirement. And this is where we get another exception to the typical Japanese success plan. Konosuke, in his 80s and technically retired but still very much calling high-level shots, decided that his son-in-law would become the new chairman, but an unlikely candidate would become the next president of the company. That candidate was Toshihiko Yamashita. He had been part of Matsushita's air conditioning division, so he was a cool guy. I'm sorry. Before he came into that role, the division, the air conditioning division, was struggling, but under Yamashita, it turned around and it became the number one brand in the market in Japan. Now, out of the 26 director-level executives at Matsushita at the time, he was number 25 in seniority. There was only one other director who was more junior than he. In other words, while he showed initiative and leadership, typically you would not expect him to be a candidate for the president of the company. That role would usually go to someone who had much more seniority than he did. But on January 10th, 1977, Konosuke Matsushita called Yamashita into his office. Konosuke was 82 years old at this point, and he had been retired from Matsushita for four years but he was clearly still calling or at least influencing the shots at the company. Yamashita wrote in his autobiography that he had no idea what the meeting was going to be about. He was actually really nervous about it. And he says that when Konosuke offered him the position of president, no one was more surprised than Yamashita himself. But is that true? We'll find out when we come back after these brief messages. 
So that last bit that I mentioned before the break, that Yamashita was the most surprised when it came to the fact that Konosuke had decided to offer him the position of president of the company, that's actually debatable. When news broke that Yamashita would become president and Masaharu would become the next chairman, the press pounced on this, and they called it the Yamashita Leap which was a sly reference to a different Yamashita, uh, Haruhiru Yamashita. He was a gymnast who won a gold medal in the 1964 Olympics. More than a few analysts predicted that this would turn out to be a bad move, that Yamashita was not senior level enough to really be the proper leader. As for Konosuke, he saw that the company he founded had grown into a really enormous organization. And he had also seen that other companies that went through this process often struggled or they would even collapse under their own weight. Even companies in the United States, where he had been so impressed during his tours, he wanted to learn from the mistakes of others and avoid the problems that often come along with explosive growth. Together, he and Yamashita identified that the company had really just grown too complacent, that while the electronics market in Japan was different than years past, the lagging sales could not all be blamed on market saturation or maturity or economic recession. Rather, they concluded that the company itself just wasn't innovating enough or listening to customers as much as it should. Yamashita definitely shook things up. He felt that the managerial levels in the company were overlapping too much, and so he actually eliminated an entire management level in order to remove redundancy. He also encouraged employees who felt stagnant to switch to a different division and thus bring new perspectives and approaches to their new coworkers. He also gained a reputation for trusting the divisional business decisions to the executive management teams at the head of each division. He would only occasionally step in himself and direct things. And when he did step in, it could be uh, more than a little disruptive. So, for example, there was a time when Yamashita essentially made a promise to RCA that Panasonic would create a four-hour-long VHS tape. And at the time, the internal teams at Matsushita had not yet even made a two-hour tape. But a promise is a promise, and so their teams got to work feverishly tackling engineering challenges and ultimately producing the four-hour tape. And that would go on to be one of the big successes for the company at this time, because customers loved having that much tape to be able to record stuff. While Matsushita slash Panasonic was briefly in the business of designing mainframe computers in the 1960s, that environment was a little too competitive and Konosuke had decided to withdraw from the computer industry. Yamashita took another look at the field and decided that the mainframe business was still too competitive and it was also starting to peter out. There was a transition moving toward mini computers and then microcomputers. And so he decided that the company should still be in the business, but not in mainframes. He wanted to get into the semiconductor business. One of the big procedural changes that happened under Yamashita's leadership was in the way that the company would lay out its plans. Uh, it had been creating year-long plans for the company, but they were finding that the volatility in markets and the various challenges in trade agreements for international trade, as well as the fluctuations in currency value, often meant that a year-long plan could easily be disruptive by a few changes. It just was too, too hard to stay on track. You get sidetracked too quickly. So instead, Yamashita and his team 
laid out a three-year plan, and that gave them enough room to allow for some volatility. Things could go a little, you know, Las Vegas crazy style for a while, then they could settle down. And if you have three years to achieve a goal, even if it's a more ambitious goal than a year-long goal, it, it gave you more of a chance for success. This was all in an attempt to be more proactive rather than reactive. And the reason I bring this up is that we often see tech companies and honestly companies in all industries give a fanatical dedication toward short-term gains and sometimes that's at the cost of long-term success. You could argue, and I certainly have argued, that this is kind of tied with the business strategy of catering all your decisions in some way around returning value to shareholders which is a strategy I'm not terribly fond of because it frequently isn't great for anyone in the long term. And it really feeds into stuff like speculation, which is not generally a good thing. In 1982, Panasonic was one of the first companies to develop a compact disc player. Now, the history of the CD actually dates all the way back to the 1960s and mostly in the 1970s. Sony and Philips were both independently developing this technology in the 70s, but then ultimately they would join forces Voltron style in order to further refine the technology and to establish standards. That would be important as it would help sidestep the issue of competing and incompatible formats on the market. That's something that tends to be a great frustration to consumers because there's nothing like going out and buying something that's going to run on some form of media player and find out that, oh, the media player you have isn't compatible with the media you bought, that's a terrible feeling, and it does happen. So they wanted to get around that. So once again, Panasonic did not have a leadership role in the development of this technology, but the company was able to build out a CD player and launch it in 1982 when players first started hitting the market. However, this does mean I should probably talk a bit about how compact discs work, since I've done that for magnetic storage in this series. And if you look at a standard one-sided compact disc, you'll likely see some sort of label on one side, and the other side will be really shiny, almost like a mirror. And you put the disc in a player label side up, uh, or a CD drive, and then the magic happens. But how is the data actually stored on the disk? Well, in this case, this is not a magnetic system. It's an optical system. That means that this is a system that uses light and optics, like mirrors and lenses, to encode and decode information. It's also a digital format, not an analog format. So let's start by talking about a blank CD that has nothing stored on that glossy side. When a machine writes to CD, it uses a powerful laser to carve out tiny indentations in a spiral on that CD. Uh, the spiral actually starts near the center of the CD, so this is kind of the opposite of how a vinyl record works, where you would set a needle toward the outer edge of the record and the needle would spiral inward. So what you're left with are, if you were to look at this under a microscope, you'd see a series of reflective surfaces on that CD, as well as some little bumps. And those represent ones and zeros, respectively. A reflective segment is called a land, uh, that would be a one, and a bump is called a pit, 
that would be a zero. So why is a bump called a pit? Well, it all depends on how you're looking at the CD. You look at the CD one way, you're looking at bumps. You turn the CD and you look at it a different way, you're looking at pits. And this is binary information, ones and zeros. So that's a, a binary unit. You can think of this like a series of light switches where a one is a switch in the on position and a zero is in a switch in an off position. Using lots of bits, like millions of them, you can describe all sorts of stuff, including audio. So this brings us to digital versus analog. An analog recording is a record of a continuous input signal. But a digital recording is more like a very detailed description of an original input. So in a way, we can think of an analogy in which uh, an analog signal is a script from a play. It's got all the stage directions in it, character descriptions, it's got all the dialogue in it, you know, everything's in the script. But a digital signal is more like someone goes to the play and takes very detailed notes of everything they see and hear. And so they create as best a description of the play as they possibly can. So digital recordings describe stuff like audio by breaking it down. So they might break it down into things like pitch and loudness and other values that can be expressed as bits. Moreover, there's also a concept we have to talk about called a sample rate. This describes how frequently every second the system is analyzing this signal in an effort to describe it. Higher sample rates require a lot more data, but they also result in a more faithful representation of the original sound. So to go back to our play analogy, let's say we've got two digital-like observers. So this is two note-takers. But our two note-takers aren't able to just sit in the theater the whole time. They actually have to duck in and out. So one of the two observers is allowed to jump in every 30 seconds and they can stick around for a few seconds and jot down all the notes and then they have to duck back out until the next 30 seconds comes around. The other one can only go in every five minutes for a few seconds at a time and take very detailed notes, but then they have to leave and wait another five minutes. At the end of this very strange experience, the one who ducked in more frequently will probably have a better understanding of what was going on in the play from moment to moment. And that's kind of like sample rates. The more frequent you sample, the more accurate the copy is to the original, you know, performance. When you put a CD into a player, the player uses a laser to read the CD. Uh, this is not as powerful a laser as the one that was used to write to the CD in the first place. And you need a laser because you have to focus a very fine beam of light to pick up these pits and lands on the CD. A sensor registers the zeros and ones, and a decoder takes that information and turns it into something meaningful that can be sent to you know, amplifiers and speakers. So CDs are very different from stuff like magnetic tape. They also are not affected by magnets, whereas you can wipe out a recording on tape if you bring that tape too close to a really powerful magnet. However, because CDs rely on light, it means that if you get any scratches or dirt or smudges on the reflective side of a CD, it causes problems because the laser won't be able to effectively read those pits and lands on that side of the disc. There's a lot more I could go into, such as how rewritable CDs work, but we're going to leave off of this for now and carry on with our history. 
CD players were really expensive when they first debuted. In fact, I, I didn't get my first CD player until maybe the early 1990s. And even then it was a little portable CD player unit. But eventually the CD would overtake and largely replace other formats like cassette tapes and vinyl records. And it also would launch endless arguments among audiophiles about whether a digital recording can ever match the fidelity of an analog recording. And I'll just back away from that particular hornet's nest. By the mid-1980s, international trade agreements were putting the squeeze on Japan. Yamashita agreed to resign his position as president, becoming an executive advisor. The new president of the company was a man who had played a fundamental part in the most recent three-year strategic planning phase. His name was Akio Tani. Tani defined four areas that the company would focus on. Semiconductors, the next generation in audio-visual electronics, automated manufacturing equipment, and communications equipment, like cell phones and stuff. He also expanded the sales department, and he specialized them. And in 1987, he introduced a concept to the company called Human Electronics, which I thought at first meant they were going to make cyborgs, and I got really excited. But no, what he meant by that was a product design process that would pay more attention to what people needed and wanted, and less on being flashy or throwing in features just to have them included in the product. In 1987, the company established its first manufacturing facility in China. The new facility would make CRTs, or cathode ray tubes. These were used in televisions at the time, though it wouldn't be much longer before the industry would kind of move away from CRT televisions toward other options like LCDs and plasma TVs. Also in 1987, Tani announced that the Matsushita Electrical Industrial Company and the Matsushita Electric Trading Company, which technically were two separate entities, would consolidate in a merger. And this was all part of a strategy to step up the international sales in the company. And part of this was to try and overcome increasingly challenging obstacles that came with intense trade disagreements between Japan and other nations. Japanese companies, as a general rule, were finding it challenging to export goods, and so they began to establish branches in other countries where they could have manufacturing facilities and sales teams there who worked on a more local level that would get around some of those pesky trade obstacles. All right, we're going to blast through the rest of the history of this company very, very shortly, but first let's take another quick break. On April 27, 1989, Konosuke Matsushita, the founder of Matsushita slash Panasonic, passed away at the age of 94. Even after his retirement in the 1970s, he had continued to play an important role in directing the course of the company he had founded. He had a rather lauded reputation in the company and in Japan, though we can't ignore the fact that his company also got involved in some fairly questionable activities involving price fixing and unfair competitive practices. Still, he legitimately established a global company from extremely humble beginnings, so you can't ignore that. In 1990, Matsushita Panasonic made what, in retrospect, you could call a boneheaded mistake. The company, eager to keep up with their major competitor, Sony, sort of the Darth Vader to Panasonic's Luke Skywalker, decided to get into the content business, the entertainment industry. 
Sony had acquired Columbia Pictures Entertainment in 1989. And fun fact, that company had previously been owned by Coca-Cola because companies are weird. The movie business is super weird. And there was this crazy idea of synergy that really made more sense in concept than in execution. But to keep up with Sony, Panasonic went and acquired a different entertainment company, MCA. MCA, and I mean the company, not the Beastie Boy, started out as the Music Corporation of America. It had been founded in 1924. Over the years, uh, it changed a great deal. When it first started, it was a talent agency. But by 1990, it had become a fully-fledged entertainment company, complete with movie and music and television studios. In fact, it was the owner of Universal Studios. The deal amounted to somewhere between $6.6 and $7.5 billion. It all depends on which source you're looking at. The love affair between Matsushita and Hollywood didn't last very long. In fact, you could cynically joke that it was on par for Hollywood marriages in general. Matsushita would sell off 80% of its stake in MCA just five years after the acquisition, in 1995. And here's another crazy thing. Seagram was the buyer. Yeah, Seagram, the whiskey company. Seagram would uh, turn around in 2000 and sell off its stake to Vivendi, and then Vivendi would ultimately purchase the remaining interest in MCA that was still held by Matsushita in 2006. So ultimately, 2006 is when Matsushita completely got out of the entertainment industry business. Now, the time that Matsushita owned MCA was turbulent. There were stories of executive-level disputes, and the company struggled with low profits. The movie business was far more volatile than the electronics company had anticipated, and it certainly was more volatile than they cared for. And it was a really a bad fit from the start. It pointed to the danger of diversifying your business without real strategy behind the diversification. It's it's one thing to make sure you're not completely dependent upon one business, but it's another to just grab any business that happens to be nearby. And ultimately, Matsushita paid for this. Upon selling their 80% stake, the company brought in 585 billion yen, but it had purchased uh, MCA for 850 billion yen. And the value of MCA actually went up during its tenure as part of Matsushita, if you look at it from a dollar value, but the value of the yen changed dramatically in that same span of time, so overall it became a loss. But back to 1990 very quickly. That's also when Panasonic released the Panacom Pro Note. This was the first notebook computer Panasonic ever released. If you look at a picture of the thing, it's really chunky looking. It's one of those big laptops that you probably wouldn't actually want to have on your lap. Panasonic also introduced a cellular phone called the Mova P the following year, and a rewritable optical disc recorder, though this was more of an industrial thing, not a, a home electronics thing. That also came out in 1991. In 93, after many decades of partnership, Matsushita and Philips, the Dutch electronics company, called it quits. Panasonic purchased the stake that Philips owned in Matsushita Electronics Corporation, which was, again, about 35% of the ownership of the company, and they did it for 185 billion yen. 
the two companies did agree to a cross-patent licensing deal, so it's not like there were hard feelings. Also, this gets into how Panasonic is more nebulous than as a single entity. It's really a lot of different companies that are all related to one another, some having ownership in other companies in the group. But the more I looked into it so I could try and explain it, the more I was convinced that I'm just not cut out for that level of madness. It's why I really like describing technology. Technology either works or it doesn't work. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. Corporate structures and governance, though, that stuff, I mean, you might as well call it magic to me. Anyway, Japan was going through an economic recession in 93, and Panasonic was hurting. President Adiotani facing pressure with Panasonic's poor performance, particularly from Chairman Masaharu Matsushita, who is still in charge at that point. This is, by the way, uh, Konosuke's son-in-law. So uh, Tani would resign his position, and his replacement was Yoichi Morishita. And Morishita, unlike his predecessors, was not someone that had studied under Konosuke. He, he was not a, a, a candidate that had been groomed by the founder. He would go through the process of trying to shed some of the bloat that the Matsushita company had accumulated, including selling off that stake in MCA in 1995. During his tenure, the company also got into the business of digital television sets and DVD players, navigation systems, plasma TVs, which would kind of come back to haunt them, and more. The Panasonic brand became more popular in the U.S., though the company had not yet launched a defining technology the way Sony had done with, say, the Walkman. A lot of Morishita's work was in course corrections and attempts to return to profitability in Japan. It was still a struggle. In 1999, for example, the company's operating profit fell 18%, which is not good. We get another big change in leadership in 2000. Chairman Masaharu Matsushita retired. And that essentially ended the Matsushita domination of the company. Yoichi Morishita would become the new chairman of the company. And there was talk originally of Konosuke's grandson, Masayuki Matsushita, taking over the position of president, but the board of directors had concerns that perhaps Masayuki lacked the leadership qualities that they wanted, and that maybe it was a better idea to move away from the Matsushita dynasty. So instead, they chose the former CEO of Matsushita Electric Corporation of America, Kunio Nakamura. Nakamura had a huge challenge. At this point, Matsushita slash Panasonic had become truly gargantuan. In Japan alone, the company had 140 divisions. And like a lot of bigger companies, it had grown haphazardly. There was a lot of redundancy. There was a lot of bureaucracy. It was becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to operate the company in a nimble way. So he needed to simplify things quite a bit. He also made some controversial decisions within the company. For example, he pulled design decisions away from engineering teams, and he gave them to marketing teams. And the idea was that engineers were reluctant to jump onto new things or adapt to current trends. They were more comfortable doing things the way they had done them, whereas the marketing team knew what customers were looking for. And I feel a little conflicted about this because I've seen what can happen when marketing teams have a, a lot of say in things. It does not always go well. But at the time, Matsushita was really starting to lag behind other electronics companies, so it was probably a needed change there. 
under Nakamura, more younger executives and more women executives got opportunities. Nakamura said that he wanted to reward performance and hard work over stuff like seniority or title. At the same time, he made some pretty drastic cuts to the company. He oversaw the closing of 30 factories in Japan, which was nearly a quarter of all the company's production facilities there. He oversaw layoffs, some 13,000 layoffs, and he sold off a lot of company assets that he saw as being kind of unnecessary and distracting. And this was all within his first year as president. The electronics market was not doing so hot at the time, and even with all those changes, Nakamura was kind of swimming against a very strong current. He pushed the company to get into more service industries, kind of offset the declining demand for physical products. But by 2002, the company had posted its first actual loss. Not just a a fall in profits, but I mean an actual loss, like the company lost money, and it was a doozy. It's not a little bit of money. It was $3.4 billion. Nakamura, however, just kept making changes. He spun off five group companies to become full subsidiaries. Panasonic would retain ownership of the companies, but they would be able to operate much more independently. By 2003, the extensive changes were starting to show results, with Panasonic gaining the lead as the largest consumer electronics company. Profits went from having a total loss in 2002 to a $717 million profit in 2003. Several divisions became leaders in the market, including Panasonic's thin plasma televisions. Boy, that was a great victory for the time, but it would come back to bite them. In 2006, we get another change. Nakamura would become the chairman of the company, you know, once again, moving from president to chairman. And Fumio Otsuba, former managing director, would become the new president of the company. That same year, Matsushita planned to spin off JVC. They sold it to Kenwood Corporation. That would take about two years for it to complete. And the company once again came under scrutiny along with several other electronics companies. And not just in Japan, there were other ones as well. But the charge was that A large number of these companies, Panasonic included, were part of a cartel that was controlling the price of liquid crystal displays, or LCDs. So not that different from previous charges that had been leveled against Panasonic back in the 1960s. The European Union would find Panasonic guilty of this, and along with five other firms, the companies were ordered to pay a very large fine. The total fine was around $1.9 billion. But Panasonic's share was a relatively small 157.5 million euros. And in 2008, we finally get to the moment where Matsushita officially changed its name to Panasonic. And the company was no longer under the direction of the Matsushita family for the most part, and the Panasonic brand was far better known in the United States than Matsushita was, so it made sense. In 2009, Panasonic acquired Sanyo Electric Company, turning it into a subsidiary. And if you've been listening to this series from the beginning, you might remember that Sanyo was actually founded by Konosuke Matsushita's brother-in-law. He had worked for the Matsushita Company, but then left the company after the U.S. government began to get involved after World War II. For decades, Sanyo had actually competed in some of the same markets as Panasonic, but now the two companies were coming together. 
While Panasonic built upon its name recognition, it also was making big cuts. In 2011, the company announced it would cut around 40,000 jobs in an effort to eliminate redundancy, improve efficiency, and to deal with some massive losses that were once again mounting. In 2012, Otsubo stepped up to the position of chairman, and Nakamura would become an executive advisor, and the new president of the company was Katsuhira Tsuga. And he actually remains the president of the company today, although Otsuba would not be chairman for very long. In 2013, he was replaced by Shusaku Nagei, and uh, Shusaku is still chairman to this day. Panasonic has had to deal with more than a few instances of allegations that the company has engaged in price fixing, collusion, and corruption over the last few years. The avionics division has been under scrutiny for that. The automotive systems corporation was under scrutiny for that. And the company has had a few cases pop up that point to it attempting to fix the game in one way or another. Whether or not that was the knowledge of the top levels of the company is another matter, but certainly divisions of the company have come under suspicion a few times in the past few years. In addition, the story that tends to go with each incoming president is how that president is charged with saving Panasonic. It's interesting to hear how each president comes in and they're supposed to try and save the company. That's not a great narrative. You would prefer to build on success rather than have to be known as someone who's correcting the course of a company. One of Tsuga's priorities was getting Panasonic out of producing plasma televisions. That was an example of him saving the company because consumers had already moved on. They were more interested in LCD TVs, LED TVs, but Panasonic had invested billions of dollars in producing plasma sets. So this was not an easy decision, but it was clear that trying to sell plasma sets in a world that just wasn't interested in them was ultimately a losing proposition. And Tsuga really did have a tough job ahead of him. The year before he became president, Panasonic had posted a monumental loss of $9.8 billion. Now, to be fair, Panasonic wasn't the only Japanese electronics company to post massive losses around that time. Others were doing the same, like Sony. And that has led to a conversation about whether or not Japanese companies in general are too reliant upon tradition and they're not capable of responding more quickly to a changing market. But honestly, that's a discussion that would require more investigation in a future episode, maybe. The thing to remember now is that Panasonic is a truly huge company with lots of divisions, only a few of which are related to consumer electronics. So people like me who associate Panasonic with that, we're only seeing a small slice of the overall company. All of this grew out of the work of a humble electrician who made light sockets out of a little office that was in a dirt floor building back in 1918. That, to me, is truly phenomenal. And that wraps up the Panasonic story so far. Uh, there are a lot of elements I didn't go into deep detail about, obviously. If I had, we would have been stretching on to like seven or eight episodes. But I'll probably have future episodes that look into stuff that relate back to these. Whether they're directly about Panasonic or Panasonic plays a part in the story, that remains to be seen. But... In the meantime, if you guys have suggestions for future topics I should cover in tech stuff, whether it's a technology 
a trend in tech, a company, a person, whatever it may be, if it's related to tech, let me know. Reach out on Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.